welcome to Intergenerational Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experiences during Watergate. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst, and I wear special pins for our special guests. Um, Jill's pin today is the Blind Lady Justice, which seemed very appropriate for our special guest today. So let's get right to the subject. Following an acquittal in the U.S. Senate after a deadly insurrection, former President Trump may have thought he had gotten away with his conduct. But as Leader McConnell said, he hasn't escaped justice yet. He may still be held accountable through our criminal justice system or through civil litigation, And one of the ways he may be held accountable is through a case in the office of today's guest, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. Uh, Cy went all the way to the Supreme Court to get Trump's financial records and evidence in his investigation of the crimes of the former president uh, that may have been committed in New York. So that's a very big deal. Yes. And in addition to his investigation of Trump, Sai has worked to transform the office to include cybercrime, sex trafficking, and terrorism, while also leading numerous other high-profile courtroom victories, including People versus Weinstein, after a shaky start. Prior to being elected as district attorney in 2010, Sai worked as assistant district attorney in the office he now leads, served as special assistant to the New York Attorney General, co-founded the McNall Ebel Hold on one sec. How do you pronounce that law firm? <laughs> I, I, I practiced okay. for 16 years. <laughs> so, um, and, and he was also in private practice, I'll say that, um, before returning to New York. Um, we are especially delighted to talk to uh, District Attorney Vance about his career in law, the exceptional work he's doing as District Attorney, and his plans post-retirement. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Sure, my great pleasure. Nice to meet both of you. Thank you. Um, I, I want to start on a more get-to-know-you personal level uh, before we get to some of the interesting things that you've done as DA. Uh, you're a lifelong New Yorker. You were born there. You went to school there. But after six years as an assistant district attorney uh, for the very office that you now head, you moved to Seattle. And you've been quoted as saying that you did that because you wanted to build a name for yourself Uh, outside the shadow of your father's influence. And for our audience who knows only you and your successes, I want to mention that your father, Cyrus Vance, was a dedicated public servant who was the uh, Secretary of State under Jimmy Carter, Deputy Secretary of Defense under Lyndon Johnson, and Secretary of the Army under President Kennedy. Um, But you, you moved to Seattle and you accomplished your goal by, you know, starting this very successful law firm And of course, we're glad for New York that you returned um, and you went back to private practice there with um, a a law firm that I very well know because um, I had dealings with uh, Morvillo during um, Watergate and uh, Larry Eisen, who is the partner there, was also involved in the Watergate case. Um, So you were there until your election as DA in 2010. Uh, But I wanted to talk to you more about your decision to move to Seattle and um, how your father influenced your life. Uh, Given his resume, uh, I I can easily understand why you would want to, you know, be independent. And, but I I, I even wonder what your dinner conversations were like. Um, (laughs) Well, my father was a lawyer as well as someone who was in government service. And Israel, I, I think he identified as a lawyer and as a lawyer. Uh, and so he would work in government service, uh, which he felt very privileged to do. And then he would come back to New York City and, and go back into the private practice of law. And then he'd be, he was thrilled when he'd be called out and asked to do something again. But growing up with my father, not uh, he his love of the practice of law and his belief that the law was such a powerful tool to accomplish just and great objectives uh, and, and very and personal, not just high level, but it really is such an intimate practice when you look at how justice is played out in the courtrooms and our trials uh, all across America. Uh, that certainly 
was a very powerful thing for me to you know, grow up around. I sort of thought about, before I even thought about what I wanted to do, it was the atmosphere in which I was, in which I was growing up. And so it, I, I got out of college. I went to work for a shipping company, and I did, I'd done that on and off for about five years. It was outside of the country in West Africa. And I think it was you know, my attempt to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to give something else a shot uh, and to see, to see how it goes. And I, I, the work was fascinating, but um, ultimately, I, I really felt that I want to try being a lawyer. And so I came back with the law school, and then I uh, came to the DA's office because I thought as a lawyer, I really wanted to, I thought that I would love the practice of trial practice, you know, in, in law. But it was, I, was nowhere, I was nowhere near as informed or engaged in criminal justice as the young men and women who come here seeking to be lawyers today. I mean, I, 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 people say this often, but it's very true. I, I would have, I would not have been a very impressive candidate uh, among the candidates that try to get here. So I, I, but I got, I did, a, I, I was hired by Bob Waterthaw, and I, and I was really, I was actually really good at it. And that's sort of, I, so I stayed with the, the practice of law up out to the West Coast for a generation and then back here to work with Bob Morvillo before I ran for DA. But my dad's, uh, my dad's, as, as a family member experiencing his practice of law, it was had a powerful influence for me and no surprise to me that ultimately I relinquished my rebellion and ended up being a lawyer like my father. But as to Seattle, uh, I, I, my wife, Peggy, is nine kids uh, in a family that was centered in New York, and my family was centered in New York, and my father was a very well-known lawyer as well as a well-known government person, and I, I think Peggy felt, and I had to agree with her, that there was, that was a good idea for us to go someplace where we literally knew nobody, but to a, to a part of the country where it was beautiful and we could afford to buy a house at the time, and Seattle was it wasn't any more sophisticated a decision than that, but we moved to Seattle and stayed there uh, 16 years, much longer than anticipated, and raised our kids there before we came back and put them in school here in the city. And, uh, you know, I think it's safe to say that while it, it wasn't the most obvious path to become district attorney of New York County to move to the West Coast for almost a generation, I would never become DA had I not done that because I actually learned so much uh, about criminal justice practice broadly and policy. Uh, in a part of the country where it was, you know, it was very active and vibrant, and sometimes New Yorkers think they know everything, and and going out and practicing sort of at a, at a more national and very geographically was was actually a really good thing for me to have done. So you know, you've transitioned from working in government into private practice and back again, and for young people to listen to your career, it's really appealing. And I wonder what advice you have for them and whether or not you advise that path of working in both the government as well as private practice. Well, I absolutely do. I mean, just starting as a lawyer, that you know, looking at that, at, at, you know, I say, I didn't know I was going to be a lawyer, uh, but I would, my advice, such as it is, for when, for what it's worth, is I really think the legal field is vast, and obviously it's vast not just in New York City, but it's vast, even more vast across the country. So there, uh, you know, in theory, there are all kinds of ways you can enter the legal field. What I would, what I say to uh, young folks coming out of college is, I think it's really important that if if you can imagine that first job in in law, for example, as and love it. Uh, if you, you're not going to be making a lot of money in your first job, pretty much whatever it is. But if you choose something that you think, you think, and then it turns out to be really uh, nourishing and exciting and, and you want to do it, that's going to color your profession for the rest of your life. Um, if I had gone into a law, I mean, I remember interviewing with some fancy law firms when I was getting out of law firm. And it's just so obvious to me and to them during the course of the interview that I you know, I wasn't, and that I, I mean, this was really was not a fit at that time. Uh, and so I think 
the, uh, the concept of going into public service after after graduation um, is exciting for most I think most people. It's exciting. You get a lot of responsibility. Look, you, look, look what you did with the Biden campaign. It, whenever 18 years old, I mean, that doesn't happen with you. That doesn't have to go work at, at Solomon Brothers. Or if they don't exist anymore. You go work at Goldman Sachs. Uh, so someplace that 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 is that part of you, and then um, uh, I think you are you know you you are you get training just again in, in law, whether it's public defender or prosecutor. I mean, I've been a, I've been a defense lawyer, so I, I love that work as well. But to uh, go something you love and that is active and engaged, that will that will that will give you, I think, the motivation to. To stay in the profession, and it will, you'll also, I think, be building on strength after strength because your decisions, I think, will become stronger uh, if you're building on a strong foundation. Yeah, and so you know, when you moved to Seattle, you so you uh, co-founded this law firm. Did you consider a government job there, or was private practice? I, I left uh, the, the DA's office where I worked for six years as a, as a young lawyer in a very exciting time. Uh, in criminal justice, mostly because it was such a high crime era that we were very busy. Um, and I went out to go into I went out to leave uh, to leave that and to try out my practice. And so, so that was not something I did while I was in Seattle. Throw my hat in when George Bush, number two, or whatever the whatever he's called, the second George Bush president. Uh, I, I applied to be the United States Attorney in the Western District of Washington, which would have been a federal appointment, uh, presidential appointment. And, and I, you know, it's a process, and I threw my hat into the process, and my hat did not remain in the ring very long in that process. It was because uh, it was thrown out. Uh, but, I, but I was glad I, I, I'd always, I did always have uh, in my heart the desire to run for us, uh, to run for an office that I felt I was suited for. But I'm not, I wouldn't run for controller. I wouldn't. There's lots of offices that I'm not suited for. I really was suited to run for DA. I had been a prosecutor, been a defense lawyer. I had learned a lot about criminal justice issues and philosophy and practices. And so when I and so when I came back, I actually felt this is something that if I'm lucky enough to win the job, I think actually I'm trained for this. It's, it's and of course it is an amazing and wonderful job to have. Um, you did when you decided to run uh, in two thousand and nine. You said that you wouldn't run if Morgenthau, who had been your had been the DA when you worked for him, um, when you worked in the office as an assistant. Um, so lucky for us, he decided, I guess, to retire that year, and it opened it up to you. Um, but a lot of articles say that you weren't really interested in politics. Um, is that true? Is that how you see yourself? Oh, I, I grew up, in, I, my father was not a politician, but my family was deep in politics. Uh, and it was to answer your very first question, this almost every dinner table conversation growing up, politics and policy and not a lot on emotions <laughs> and, and the other things that make you a whole person but we talked a lot about politics and policy and uh, you know i i had worked my parents had me at six years old handing out bumper stickers for lbj uh walking our dog and handing out bumper stickers for lbj and i worked for gary hart in his first presidential campaign uh, i did advanced work for gary hart and i worked high school for ed muskie and then ran for president Youth Coalition for Muskie are calling people in Iowa teenagers, getting them out of the farm to try to farm or barn to try to get them to, you know, get engaged for Muskie. So I love politics, um, but I but I'm not. There's a lot about politics, which is I, I which I think is also um, difficult, and and uh, and I don't view myself as a politician, uh, although I have to run for office to get this job. And I have no aspiration to be to, to be another type of politician. I think I really ran for the job, and, and I think the best job in the country, uh, where, where, where to be the district attorney. I think is of Manhattan. There are other great offices, but there is an absolutely unusual uh, state prosecutor's office. 
So was it something that you had thought about for a long time that you sort of, even as a, a, a young lawyer in the uh, office, Bob Morgenthau stayed for 36 years as DA. When I left the office in 2000, uh, 1988, uh, you know, people were assuming Bob was, he was like 70, maybe he was 72 at that time, and people were thinking he wasn't going to run again. He just kept running. And so by the time I left for 16 years and came back, he was still the district attorney. And a generation of folks who wanted the DA, you know, didn't get to run. But I would have told you uh, when I left the DA's office in, uh, in 88, that if I could have one job uh, when I grow up, it would be to be the Manhattan DA. And it just so happened that when I came back and I knew Mr. Morgan thought Bob, and it was pretty clear to me that he probably wasn't going to run, uh, but he wasn't making it easy on me. You know, he was he was going to run. Uh, that's the kind of guy who he was. And so Ted Sorensen, who I was introduced to by one of his partners at uh, Paul Weiss Law Firm here, I had the luck of sitting down with Ted Sorensen for lunch, and Jay Johnson, who was the former uh, secretary for uh, Homeland Security. Uh, and Ed Sorensen said, look, here's the thing, you got, here's what you need to say. Because it's hard to run against, it's hard to run for DA, but, but saying you're not going to run against the guy who has it and hasn't said he's going to leave at all. But you need to meet people and you need to raise money for the possibility that you might run. He said, what you should say is I'm running to succeed Bob Morgenthau, not to oppose him. And so that was the line I used in all my, you know, and whatever anyone said, what are you doing? You know, Bob says he's running again. I said, well, I'm running to succeed Bob, uh, if and whenever that happens. Boy, Ted Sorensen was really a genius at advice. Um, he was, he, he did so much for Kennedy and, and he gave you great advice. That seems completely, completely wonderful. Jay Johnson was um, our guest uh, last week on this show. So, uh, we're, we're, we're staying close. Anyway, um, wh when you did succeed, Bob Morgenthau, um, first of all, w would you have run for a different office? Was your desire to be in public office enough that you might have run for something other than DA if he hadn't retired? Uh, no, I would not have. I would not. I, this really was, wisely or not, this was the job that I aspired to, and I didn't really aspire to another job. Um, and I think when you've been the DA in Manhattan for a while, the public doesn't necessarily fully appreciate you know, the scope of the work that's done here, from the largest economic cases that interface with banks and businesses around the, around the world to terrorism, both domestically and foreign, as well as economic crime and cyber crime and street crime. There just is no office that has a portfolio as, as big as this one. So it, um, it's, it's, it's unique. And I also, but I also didn't, uh, I, there are aspects of running for other offices that I think would, would have been uh, exciting, perhaps, but I think if I, if I, if I, assuming I even wanted to run for mayor and could win running, for mayor, I think I would wake up the day, the first day after and say, what did I do? I'd be going to barbecues on Staten Island on Sunday evenings for the next four years. And, I, you know, I'm just not. So let's look at um, your career in the DA's office uh, as DA. What were your goals when you first were running? Uh, what did you hope to accomplish as DA? The goals were, in one sense, very specific, Jill. I, uh, I went through a process with friends and, and my wife, Peg, advising me that I really said, I felt I had to, you know, essentially what my what what I'm going to do, and why I'm going to do those things that I want to do. And so, uh, when I came into the office, I had about 20 different priorities lined up that I wanted to move on. And I knew the office, so it wasn't as if I I, I knew the office, and that's a real edge coming into an office, even succeeding a guy like Bob. And so, over the next four years. We really did do every one of the 20 things that we set out to do. For example, 
you know, open up a dedicated cybercrime bureau and lab, for example, build a family justice center uh, to merge support for domestic violence survivors and sexual crime victims with city services, you know, co-locate those, have an office, build an office in Washington Heights, so, the, so, the, so our office would have a presence in northern Manhattan in a principally Spanish-speaking neighborhood, things like that. And then we really went by one and did them. I did. I never learned Spanish, which was one of my goals. But other than that, uh, having that having that list uh, is obviously it's pretty common sense. I mean, I don't think that's, that's genius. It, it did certainly help me. Two things. Number one, it helped focus my conversations with folks like the New York Times and other folks that I was. Seeking endorsements from them. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's why I'm going to do it. And also it helped me when I came into the office. It helped me with the staff that I assembled as to be the sort of the leaders, as well as the overall office. So what, you know, where I was going, uh, and you know, and then to take bite-sized chunks off that list. You know, one sequencing out of that was also very helpful. Then of course, if you get through the list, then you got you know, create another list because you, you, you can't sort of wander easily uh, in, in the job. You've announced you're not running for re-election. So let's reflect back. What are you the most proud of? What are you the most disappointed? What's your biggest disappointment? And what's next for you? There is no single one thing that is the best or the worst. I think I've had plenty of the best and I've had a few of the worst. Um, I think my goal was to take this office that was sort of the model of the best of prosecution practices in the 20th century and make that this office continue to be the best and a model of best practices in a prosecutor's office in the 21st century. We've had a lot of change in criminal justice and in crime threats in the last 10 years. And it, it really is to, uh, when I took over from the office, it was, it, it was an office that was very much a 20th century office, uh, just in terms of its systems management in the most mundane sense, uh, but also in terms of many of its policies uh, about what, what we would or would not emphasize in prosecution. And, and so, uh, and then the, the threat, you know, our, what is really our, one of our greatest cybercrime didn't really exist in, in, as a obvious threat, as a very obvious threat uh, until just before I began to get so Jill, it's, it was to make, it was to transition, you know, to, to keep the, you know, to keep the bar high. Uh, I started the office with a very high bar and I think my goal was to try before I leave to just raise that bar uh, from where I received it. If I look at the things that I'm, you know, that, that I look back at what's been done, not just by me, but by the team that we've had, in terms of things like threats, we have a cybercrime uh, team now, 75 per cybercrime team, which is really second to none. Uh, and we're doing cybercrime investigations with government partners in Singapore, in Europe. Uh, we started a not-for-profit with our, our, some of our, our government partners called the Global Cyber Alliance, which is globally developing systems and software that are designed to be able to be accessed by small businesses and sort of essentially the less, less wealthy uh, folks in the world to to be distributed freely, uh, for free, uh, across the globe to enhance their cybersecurity for both devices in the office and devices mobily. So to, to, to respond and try to meet what is huge threat, number one, is something I'm very proud the office did. Uh, when I came in, I said that the Manhattan we live in the, you know, the, one of the top terror targets of the world. And this, uh, the federal government has the prince has been decided by law really to be the principal responder to terrorists. But the truth is that there are terrorist attacks that are not going to be responded to by the feds either because they can't or they won't. 
And one recent example was I prosecuted, I prosecuted personally, a white separatist who came up from, from Virginia uh, to the black men and women in New York uh, in an effort to start a race group. Now, this was two or three years ago, and it didn't receive that much attention at the time. But it's your classic white supremacist, a young man who just went off the edge and got lost in, uh, you know, in, in the extreme right world and sought to create this nightmare scenario up here in Manhattan. And our office over the last 10 years has actually become a very strong partner in counterterrorism. Uh, we've done a number of terrorism cases that the feds, for whatever reason, decided not to or couldn't. And I feel we have stand to that really important place where uh, to fill a void to make sure that that that, that cases that the that the threat is addressed and we are supporting that threat actively. Uh, and I think that's an, that's an important thing for this office to be able to do. We we have uh, we've taken on far banks over the last decade, uh, principally in Europe, who have sought to evade American sanctions legislation which is the United States government sanctions certain individuals and entities and countries. And those countries, individuals and entities are not allowed to access the American bank. Most global transactions are done and the transaction is cleared using dollars in New York. And what foreign banks were doing was that they were seeking to ignore the rules around not working for these organizations and individuals that had been outlawed, for want of a better word, by hiding the fact that they were working for them, by changing the description of what the money was related to, and moving trillions of dollars illegally through the New York banking system and then and then through the federal government and then through the through the system. And so over 10 years, we investigated and, in some cases, prosecuted uh, 12 banks uh, and recovered $14 billion to, uh, to be distributed between federal government, New York, and about a billion or two billion came to our office from uh, forfeiture laws. And with that money, we, I was in the, I think, unique role of any prosecutor anytime where we were making $100 million grants to our city partner, the New York City Police Department, to enable them to completely redesign their mobile communication platform. So the devices they now have enable them to essentially access the mainframe in one police plaza, whether they're in a car or in a subway or in a uh, responding to a domestic violence call uh, to invest in our public housing to put in you know, safety features that those 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 places need to, you know, to address violence, to fund a nationwide effort to identify untested rape kits around the country that have been sitting and ignored by law enforcement in states all over the place, and to identify 65,000 kits and to test them, uh, to pay for their identification and testing. And in that process, they're able to identify uh, from these untested rape kits, individuals who actually committed the crimes that had gone unsolved or uninvestigated. And that's kind of the scope of, and, and, and $250 million we've investigated in crime prevention, you know, grassroots, community, not-for-profit donations in, in New York City, particularly Manhattan. So crime prevention is crime fighting by another name. You know, if you are successful at helping to educate the young man who is in state prison and get him a college degree because he is motivated and you know he wants to succeed, in which we fund, if you're if that young man has a college degree, the likelihood of coming out and recommitting an offense is almost next to zero. So there is an investment that is a crime prevention investment which translates directly into a public safety outcome. So these are things we were able to do, Jill, with, the, with these monies, which we, we never were able to do. But if you ask me what cases that, I, that really hit me the most, and we've, had a, and we've had a lot of cases in a jurisdiction like this, as you can imagine, the Chicago does too. 
but we we the, the family of the of Aton Pates, who was a six-year-old boy, you won't know this, but until you will. Aton Pates was a six-year-old boy who whose parents permitted him on Memorial Day weekend in 1979 to take, to go walk to the school bus by himself. And he lived in Soho and he left the apartment, left his mom and dad, and they, they weren't, I think they were nervous, as all parents are. And he turned the corner around Prince Street to the bodega where the bus picked up the kids and he was never seen again. And for the next 35 years, uh, Aton Pates, what happened to Aton Pates? Was he dead? Was he alive? Uh, it was a complete mystery and had been looked at by every agency except the CIA, as far as I can tell. And the family came to me and asked when I, when I was elected, would I reopen the case? And the family, as you can also imagine, was just the wonderful people, but had their lives had been completely destroyed. Uh, they kept their door unlocked every night over the last 35 years, thinking that someday he might come home they should ever change their phone number. So his, his loss, but not knowing what happened, uh, was, as you can imagine, terrible. We set about to reinvestigate the case, and we, did, and we caught some lucky breaks, but after a long journey, including a four-month trial that ended up in a hung jury with Morrison, not voting to convict and then having to retry the case again, we did ultimately find and convict the man who killed Aton Bates. And Aton Bates was the first child that appeared on the side of Milgram's, uh, where, again, before your time, Victor, but, but really started the missing children uh, phenomenon in America. So that's a case that was so powerful. I was, I was traveling to San Francisco uh, when the verdict came down because they were liberating for three weeks, and I remember uh, online just uh, you know, seeing the verdict came down, and it's just such a case. I was crying. I wasn't crying. I was weeping because that case um, was that powerful for me, and I'm sure it's because I was I'm a parent, and I'm sure it's because of a lot of things. Uh, but it's it's a real. I'm sure you made the parents feel really. Uh, relieved to have had that kind of closure. But I, I do want to ask, what's next for you? You haven't answered that question yet. I am, I'm, 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 I'm dwelling on your, your other question. What's next for me is, is the, the answer is right now, I don't know. Uh, I have got my hand full uh, on investigations uh, in the office for the next seven or eight months that I'm here. And I'm sure that I will continue in whatever I do after this in some capacity to use you know, my, my, my skills as a lawyer. But now I think having broadened quite a bit since I came in, uh, but, but whether it's in a law firm or whether it's a not-for-profit or a business, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't know yet. Well, we'll be looking forward to finding out. Um, and I do want to talk about some of the things that are still in your purview as DA, but I think Victor had a question first. Yeah, I mean, just hearing you talk about the the portfolio that you have as DA, I think it's really just inspiring for my generation to hear that. And also, I think just to hear how powerful it is to be in that position um, for you to handle all these cases. And, you know, my generation is always interested, I think, to learn about the details of various offices. And, you know, hearing you talk about your office specifically, you know, you mentioned that it's a big office. How many people do you have on your team working with you? We have a 600 lawyer office, and so another 800 oh. uh, professional staff. So it's, a, it's, it's not the, the biggest prosecutor's office is in L.A., and but Manny's office is also close, close to that. Wow. And but it's a variety, but it's the, it's the many disciplines that we do here that, that actually makes it but that's what really differentiates the office. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, like a, it's like a U.S. attorney's office. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's big. Um, the Illinois Attorney General's office was like 750. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a, a that's a big office. Um, yeah, very big. But um, any given day, 
Yeah. Or case that's in court could blow up on you, and you you just have no visibility with an office this big on necessarily any you know, or what what hand grenade is, is is out there rolling around ready to explode. And I know you have a great staff, but you have recently brought in some uh, outside expertise, um, and this is in connection with in August of 2018, you started what has to be one of the most high profile investigations ever. Um, this was into President Donald Trump, who was still president at the time. Um, with the investigation still ongoing, I, obviously I'll be careful not to ask questions that are not appropriate, but stop me if I exceed allowable limits. Um, but whatever you can say, I know will help our, un, our audience understand the possible crimes and consequences facing Trump um, out of your office. So. First of all, I, I, do you think you can complete this case uh, at least up through a decision to indict or not indict before your term expires? That's my goal. Good. Okay, so that gives us a time frame. Um, and you want to just explain the background. What was the genesis of uh, the investigation? What started you on this path? Um, and talk a little bit about that, what the scope of uh -huh. I, I, there are limits to what I can say, but there's, there's, a, there's most of the information actually comes from the president himself and his lawyers. So there was a grand jury subpoena that was issued by our office in 2019, which is itself a secret matter. And, and Jill knows this, you, you know, it's related to the grand jury, so it remains confidential. And then 95% of the business investigations, that never changes because the business doesn't choose to publicize the fact that they received the grand jury investigation, a uh, grand jury subpoena. In this case, however, Mr. Trump and the Trump organization decided that they would file a federal suit to block our ability to enforce a state grand jury subpoena and attach the grand jury subpoena to the federal complaint, which I think was they were hoping that that would somehow, I don't know what, but in any event, they, he made public, very public, uh, then for the next two years, what was otherwise uh, protecting grand jury uh, secret material. So uh, what we were looking for, uh, uh, what the subpoena said is what the subpoena said, and, and, and it was obviously an investigation and a business crimes investigation, and, um, and, and then the, the, the litigation that followed to enforce that subpoena, which is what you have to do, and there's an objection. And it's a little more complicated because he filed a civil lawsuit, uh, which had its own, which had its own uh, challenges. But we went up to the Supreme Court twice, actually, Jill. We went up first. They ruled on the constitutional issue of whether or not a subpoena like this could be enforced against a sitting president, which was, I, you know, which, 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 I think the office did an amazing job uh, with with great outside help, by the way, litigating a really important issue. Um, and and then the Supreme Court sent it back to the trial court, permitting the then president to argue sort of the more mundane objections that people object to subpoenas, overbreadth, biased prosecutor, those kinds of things. And the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, but you know, the Supreme Court, it took them about eight or nine months to rule finally on that issue. It had to go through the district court and the appellate court. Then ultimately, the Supreme Court got it and sat on it for about three months uh, until after the election and after the inauguration. And that, you know, that's, they, they create their own schedule, and uh, I'm sure they had a reason to do it along the timeline that they did, but they haven't shared it. have a theory on why they procrastinated my theory and and i think that they wanted to but without without anything other than my personal theories you know i thought they, that this was this, this case involved uh, a sitting president then a ex-president and then an inauguration and then after the inauguration january 6th happened i think there were a lot of events that perhaps the court felt it didn't want to issue a ruling in any way that could be perceived as a political response to what's going on, either 
the election, inauguration, the, the events of January 6th, I think they wanted it to be clear that it was separate from any politics. They weren't considering any politics. So that's, that's my so, speculation. And of course, I'm I'm making an assumption here that uh, you started this investigation because there was a lot of public information um, about things that Trump and the Trump Organization had done, like um, you know, valuing property at one price so that they could get a loan, and at a lower price so that they wouldn't have to pay taxes. You know that there was just a lot going on um, about business wrongdoing, bank fraud, insurance fraud all sorts of things that because you don't just start a grand jury investigation. You don't just say, oh, I'd like to look at a particular person. You look at something where you have probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. But you were in a unique position because you knew that the Department of Justice wasn't going to prosecute Trump and so that federal crimes weren't going to be pursued did that sort of motivate you to say, yes, I have to take this on, even though it'll be politically tough? I think that the, the careful way to answer that question is, um, I, I always consider, because it happens frequently, whether we are overlapping with a federal criminal investigation. And I think it was said in, on the record in this case from Hastings Court that, that the, the federal prosecutors asked us to stand down. Uh, we had issued subpoenas perhaps as early as 2017. They had an ongoing investigation that was later resolved by Michael Cohen pleading guilty uh, some, some two years later. And they asked us to stand down when they, when we were in 2008, 17, and 18, looking at some of the same facts. And I said, okay. Uh, that I would stand down because I felt that sometimes absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, and then when they resolved that case with a Cohen guilty plea, uh, that and, and, and the case in the federal court stopped, they felt absolutely that we should go back and continue what, what we were doing. But that there was, it's, it's sort of an interesting story because there was comedy, comedy. You know, I, I, there should be comedy and sort of organization and not chaos between competing uh, prosecuting authorities, and that's it, and it, it and it was a thoughtful process um, in this case. Okay, so you've mentioned the possible overlap between federal and state, uh, but what about even within the state? Because Attorney General Letitia James is also involved in investigating. Um, she has only civil authority. Um, but is there a way that you're cooperating together, working together, avoiding duplicating work, sharing evidence, anything that you can share on that? There really isn't anything I can share on that, except to say that, that in this case, as I hope in every other case, you know, we, you know, we try to work those things out uh, and, and sort them through. And I think probably extremely predictable was Donald Trump's reaction uh, to your investigation. He started to attack you. He attacked the investigation. Uh, did that have any impact on the investigation? Did it make it harder for you to do the job? Um, how do you maintain independence and avoid politics in a situation like that? It, it, it honestly had no impact whatsoever. Um, and there's been a lot, and, and there's been, and, and, and I've had a lot worse about me uh, than, than the president has said by other folks. So I think you just get used to it. Um, but I do think, and as I use this analogy because it's, it's, it's true, this kind of job, particularly in a city which is saturated with media as New York, the pe people are always going to be pressing on you, the decision maker. Uh, for political reasons, for policy reasons, and that's just the normal part of the job. And there's and people are very loud, and they are, you know, they are very persistent, and they that. And I think when and Joe was saying for your team with with, with when you were investigating a, a president for potentially criminal matters, is you just really have to 
let that noise become white noise. And you just have to stay focused. And I use the example, it's like the free throw person at the basketball court professional game. He or she is taking the free shot and there's a thousand people behind the basket waving white flags trying to distract the basketball. You just, you kind of have to keep your eye on the rim, accept the noise and try to keep your whole team focused. And, and the more you do this, the more you get used to it. But it's still, I mean, no one likes to be attacked. Um, yeah. Well, that's a, a, a great analogy to uh, focus that you need. Um, Michael Cohn has been very public in his um, commentary about Trump and about cooperating with prosecutors. Has he been helpful to you? I really can't speak about uh, about what Mr. Cohen said to us. Um, it's been reported that he met with us on a number of occasions, and um, and Mr. Cohen likes is very is very free with what he chooses to tell. Yes. Um, it's about what was discussed. It's not necessarily what we would want him to do. Uh, but I think our it's in an investigation. You're you know you are trying to gather facts and sometimes those facts require multiple meetings to understand them that's you know it's just totally typical uh whether it's a murder investigation cyber investigation or fraud investigation it's so frustrating when you are barred because of grand jury secrecy from ever saying anything but the witnesses who come in are free to say anything they want um and can have an impact by talking but uh that's those are the rules. So, and I think that applies for when you make decisions about what to charge, who to charge, uh, or not charge. You're bound by a whole different set of rules than everybody else. Uh, which, and, and you sometimes feel like you are fighting with both arms and a tie behind you. And and, so, and sometimes you are. And that's unfortunately you. You didn't think it was the job that you expected. It quickly becomes apparent that is the job that you accept. Yeah, you know, I, I imagine you, you know, you were talking about just just focusing on what's ahead. I imagine you as like a horse in a race with blinders on, and basically you're just going straight ahead um, with this investigation. But uh, you know, maybe one last question regarding the investigation and and kind of the scope of it. Um, are you able to tell us what the current scope is of right now compared to when you first started it in 2018? Yeah, I can. Okay. No worries. Um, all right. So regarding that Supreme Court decision, so you, um, so the Supreme Court made this decision after the inauguration, you tweeted, you know, I think it was like the work continues or something like that. And um, how big of an impact did that decision have on your case, if you're able to share any information? Well, uh, the Supreme Court ruling on the constitutional issue had, had, had obviously had a big impact. Um, and I think as, as lawyers, uh, having an issue decided by the Supreme Court that it was, was of that dimension uh, was, I think, personally uh, something for the lawyers who worked on this case. That, 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 that was important personally as well as with regard to the case. The second <laughs> where the Supreme Court said, okay, you come back to us again, Mr. Trump. You have asked us to consider the more mundane rulings and denied, turn over the documents. Uh, we've said all along to all, all the courts that our, our ability to completely get investigation is frustrated by our inability to receive the documents that we have sought by the So you can assume that it was important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one last question for me on, on this case, you know, with Trump out of office now, we mentioned that, you know, during office that didn't really affect you. But when with him out of office now, you know, does that make it easier for your case? Because when he was in office, he could insulate himself from harmful witnesses with threats or pardons. Um, have you seen any difference in just the terms of like the witness cooperation after he left office? I really, I really can't comment. I can't answer that question, uh, but I, I I can also say that uh, if, uh, it's it's obvious his role as president was a, was a significant factor in the litigation uh, and access to the information that we sought and and it 
took three very smart federal courts, you know, to, to sort it through. Uh, so um, that, that wouldn't, it was an education in some respects about the, some of the limits uh, on abilities to, to get information from, from a sitting president. And that, which I, I'm sure I hadn't thought them all when, you know, when, when we started this. And some of those limits make a lot of sense. I mean, uh, not necessarily as applied to this case, but you know, you you want your president focused on the matters of the country. Is there any question that we haven't asked about the Donald Trump investigation that um, you think you would like to share with our audience? Anything that you're going to be announcing soon, or any clues to what's going on? No, I. I Unfortunately, there's nothing more I can say. Right. I, I thought not, but can't hurt a girl for trying. Um, but let's talk about some other cases. Uh, you've had a lot of other high-profile cases, um, one particularly against Harvey Weinstein, which I found fascinating because I would have thought that Donald Trump's um, behavior might have caused the Me Too movement, but somehow it wasn't. It was Harvey Weinstein who started a whole new modern trend. Um, so when you, you first looked at the case, um, your office was not, um, very interested in it. Can you talk about that and then what changed in the facts that led to charges? 2015, first of all, the sex crimes bureau in our office is, I, I think it was the first sex crimes bureau in the country and is one of the best in the country today. And it is populated principally by women, principally by women who are professional prosecutors and who have absolutely no interest in going easy on men of privilege. There was a case in 2015 involving uh, Harvey Weinstein and an, an Italian national, a young woman, uh, the case involved a misdemeanor charge of uh, unlawful touching. And I asked the head of our sex crimes bureau to investigate that case. Uh, she was, I think at the time, 39-year veteran of the office and was the chairwoman of the Department of Defense Commission on Sexual Assaults in the, in the military. I so served I, on that committee, Lisa Friel. Martha oh, okay. Because I, I served on the Commission on Assault in the Military with Lisa Friel, who came from. And Martha had worked. And ultimately, the recommendation came to me that, uh, that this was not a case that, uh, that she thought the office should bring for a number of reasons, which I don't, don't think I need to get into here. But it, we probably do a thousand sex crime cases a year. Um, and and so over the course of 12 years, so, so a lot of uh, sex crimes investigations. We made a determination, as we sometimes do, that we were not gonna, we were not prosecuting that case. And that was 2015. In 2017, uh, in the in the in the fall, the New York Times and I, I came on Ronan Farrow. Both wrote extensive articles that that sort of presaged or presaged the Me Too movement or created it. I mean, obviously, it was uh, it, it certainly provided the whole world knowledge about Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and in the aftermath of that, approximately ninety nine or so women boldly forward to accuse Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault in a variety of ways. And our office then commenced an investigation into my, Mr. Weinstein in the late fall of 2017 following the publication of that article. Information that had not been available to us previously and apparently available to lots of people in Hollywood, but no one was communicating about it. Uh, and we ultimately indicted Mr. Weinstein. That indictment had, it's, it's a circuitous, circuitous path on its own, but ultimately, he went to trial in the early 
January of 2020 and was convicted uh, in February and then was sentenced in March, really literally the day before the court shut down for COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic. So, uh, and he received a 23 year sentence, which he's now updates right now. And subsequently, the LA DA's office indicted Mr. Weinstein for cases where charges, which he made, he may be extradited to, to defend those charges in LA. Mm. It was an important case. And, uh, and I, 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 as I, it was an important case. Uh, and I think it was uh, an education, not only for, for me personally, but I think for many around the country about the extent of, of, of workplace violence. Violence. Um, uh, and it was a very difficult case. Uh, and players in my office who fell into that category of women, professional prosecutors. Uh, in this case, they weren't sometimes prosecutors. They were really homicide prosecutors. They did a magnificent job. But the survivors and victims who testified in that case were amazing. Uh, amazing in the honesty with which they approached their testimony and uh, uh, to the, the honesty and I think straight character it takes to put that out publicly uh, to then be ripped apart by defense lawyers um, in an effort to diminish. And that's, you know, that's, that's the process. So that's the process, but they were, uh, they were young. Uh, and, and so this was, one was, was not in her twenties. I think everybody else was in their twenties or just, or just 30. And and the jury believed them. And I don't think, and I, I think, Jill and Victor, that what Me Too did in terms of educating the people between 2017 and when this case was tried in 2020, enormous impact. Um, because I think people, it's always been the case that in certain crimes, um, it is understood that the victim maintains a relationship with the abuser. Domestic violence is the classic example. But when I was prosecutor in the 80s, that was not as well accepted. So it took a full 20, 25, 30 years for under our understanding of domestic violence or sex trafficking to, to appreciate the victimization process uh, of the survivor. But by the time 2020 rolled around, whether you were a grandfather on that jury, a father on that jury, a daughter of a daughter, or, or a woman on that jury, I think, I think they all came in, plus the case was presented well with, and, I, and honestly, with expert testimony to sort of describing this phenomenon, I, I, I don't, I, I think everyone got it. And, and, and some of the women had, had ongoing communications with, and in some cases, sexual interactions with Mr. Weinstein, which uh, would appear, which could appear confusing or, or uh, in the context of what was described to them, uh, I think, it made sense to the jury, and um, I'm very proud that our, our lawyers were able to achieve what I think is a, was a really important case. It's a, it will change. Uh, it will change the practice. Has changed the practice in our office, and I think it will change the practice in many offices. To see a case of this, uh, with this much attention, and with this many, and with these many apparent problems, uh, and so it. Be successful, and I think hopefully, hopefully that will give that will give heart to survivors elsewhere. We have many survivors that we interviewed who just simply would not come forward, even though they had cases that were far stronger in many instances or easier than the cases that were at, that ended up being tried. I I think that's a great place to wrap up because you did make a big difference on that, um, and we. Hope that you will continue to make difference in our society, whatever you decide to do in your next chapter of life. Uh, we've appreciated your time today and um, good luck with all the pending cases in your office right now. We're all watching and maybe you'll come back um, after you're out of office and tell us more about it.
I will if you invite me, but it's been great to meet you both. Victor, good luck at school. Thank you. Future president, so. <laughs> Absolutely. Victor and, made an appearance on MSNBC and the host said, Victor for oh president. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, 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 so we're very still, proud of Victor. Still got a couple of decades until. You have to be 35. <laughs> so exactly. you have to double your current age before you can run for office. Well, nice to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank same you here. So yeah, we'll really definitely invite you back. This is amazing. Thanks. Okay.